This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Inside Obama's Brain, our guest today, Sasha Abramsky, explores the ideas, inspirations, and experiences that have shaped our president and explains the origins of Obama's extraordinary poise, focus, and self-confidence. Abramsky is a freelance journalist. His work has appeared in The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, New York Magazine, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. Sasha Abramsky, welcome to Weekly Signals. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm doing just fine. You're you're up in uh, Sacramento now. Yep. Yeah. I moved oh. there a few years ago. Yeah. And 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 life is treating you well in Sacramento. I hope. Life is treating me busy in Sacramento. <laughs> I'm <laughs> writing far too many books recently. Oh well, 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 good for you. That's that's a good thing. Mike, you saying something? Yeah. No, you have had a, a flurry of uh, output, shall we say, of late. Uh, and uh, what what inspired you for uh, for the latest for the? Well, uh, it actually. It, Unlike most of the work where I've had to sort of go out of my way to sell the idea, this one just fell into my lap. I'd done a lot of coverage of the election campaign, okay. done a lot of writing, especially of, around the Western primaries and caucuses. And a couple of weeks after the election, I got a phone call from my agent in New York, and she said, are you ready to sit down? So I dutifully sat down, and she said, Penguin wants you to write inside Obama's brain. So <laughs> yeah. I, um, it, for me, it was just this sort of almost this sort of post-election miracle. It was, wow. it was actually a, very nice. Did they give you an outline or give you some idea what they no, were? No, they gave me absolute freedom. It's part really? of a series that gets inside the heads of leading thinkers um, and leading business figures and so on. Um, so they asked me to read those books, and then they basically let me get on with it and let me work out what I thought were the sort of salient parts of Obama's personality that I should explore. Now, um, you... So creatively, I had tremendous freedom on this. Wow. Uh, you were looking into things uh, <laughs> pretty much... Uh, Late last year, the beginning of this year, uh, spring in 2009, is anything, uh, what, is con- what has been confirmed about what you know about inside Obama's brain? What's the one point that you'd say, that's a confirmation of what I learned after the uh, research I did? Well, you're right that I was researching this in the very early days of the presidency, and I, I decided Right at the outset, I decided I was going to do this as a character profile rather than attempt to chronicle the presidency. And the reason for that was it just seemed to me that you can't chronicle a presidency in the first months. The the first months of any presidency, people are getting their sea legs. They're trying to work out where they stand on issues. They're trying to work out how to put an administration together. And most of the detailed policymaking and most of the detailed institution building occurs later on. So I very explicitly decided that this was going to be a profile inside Obama's thought processes rather than inside his day-to-day political decision-making. That said, obviously, in the first year, I've been following it very closely. I've been writing a lot for different magazines and newspapers. And I think one of the things that hasn't surprised me but might have surprised a lot of his base, I think a lot of his base assumed because he was such a soaring orator and because he conjured up such grand visions of change in his speeches, I think they assumed that he was all the idealist, that he was sort of this poet president. And I never thought that, because the more I did the research, the more I realized that, yes, he is idealistic, and when he's at his best as an orator, there's very few in American history who can compete with him in terms of the sense of dream, sense of possibility that he conjures up in in an audience. But that's only one part of his personality. And when you speak to his friends, when you speak to his colleagues, when you speak to his next-door neighbors, people who see him on a daily basis, who interact with him all the time, they'll say to you, well, Obama's 
got this dueling set of priorities. One side of him is the idealist, the dreamer. Maybe it came from his mother and all of her dreams. But the other side is intensely pragmatic, that he's a very, very good, wily operator of the political game. And so when I see a lot of the things that have gone on in the last year, especially around healthcare, let's say, a lot of, a lot of the base is very, very angry about the direction the healthcare debate took. And I look at it and I think, well, a lot of presidents have had the ambition of creating universal health coverage, and they've all fallen flat. And you go all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, and this has been a sort of ambition of progressive presidents, and not one has managed to make it a reality. And you look at where we stand today, and it's an imperfect bill. It's a series of compromises. It's a messy legislative hodgepodge. But on the other hand, when push comes to shove, if Obama gets the crucial vote next week, he'll go down as the president who created universal health care in America. Now, it seems to me that you look at sort of that trajectory and you're seeing Obama at his sort of inner core. You're seeing a man who really is very, very pragmatic. He's willing to make the compromises. Um, his friend Denny Jacobs, his state Senate colleague in Illinois, said to me, he knows when it's better to get half the hog than none of the hog. And it wasn't yeah. the most poetic way of putting it, but I think it's true that Obama has this ability to know maybe better than his own base knows when you need to step back and make a compromise. Can I, can I argue a, a, a little devil's advocacy here on, on the Absolutely. On behalf of, and I, I, I agree, and I, and I think also one other thing I would add to what you're saying about Barack Obama, if people had taken a little more time to actually read the policy positions that exactly. he had articulated, they wouldn't be as surprised or as disappointed as they are now. However, I will say, and I, I understand the legislative process is very messy, and we're watching it. And in some ways, this healthcare uh, debate has been a another civics lesson, uh, an important civics lesson. We very rarely pay attention to the actual legislative process, and we we did this time. But I would argue, unfortunately for me, and I'm, my disappointment has to do with. The negotiating with yourself that seemed to be taking place uh, during this during this process, the Democrats were negotiating with themselves, giving up things before anyone ever asked them to or told them to. And the other part of this argument that that uh, does upset me is that in my lifetime, I have never seen a public more ready, willing, and able, and willing to do it at the polls to accept a more of a universal health care system in this country than they were this time around. So, so um, I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you up to, up to a point on that, but I, one, one of the things that I write about in my book, and I, in the end, I think my book became as much a meditation on where the American public was in 2008 as it is a meditation on Obama's personality. Okay. Okay. Um, and I, th I think they're sort of very intertwined stories, that Obama couldn't have emerged in normal years as a leading presidential candidate. Right. He, he was too different. Um, but in 2008, differentness became a premium instead of a liability. Yeah. Differentness became something the public was craving because the status quo was so broken. And I think what happened was that this movement developed very much around the idea that Barack Obama, the individual, represented change and that the policies were secondary. And so you go to, let's say, Berkeley, you know, the epicenter of progressive thinking in, in America, and you'd get one set of diehards who believed that Obama was going to do everything they'd ever wanted in terms of progressive politics. And then I travel out to eastern Nevada, to, to rural Nevada, and I talk to conservative ranchers whose politics are as different from those of Berkeley politics as you can imagine. But they'd say the same thing. I, I, I was amazed. I'd go and I'd talk to people, and they'd say to me, well, we're supporting Obama. And I'd say, why? And they said, because we trust him. We want change. And their politics were so different from Berkeley's. And I think that that was one of the things we saw was this 
absolute desire for change in the person of Obama. And so you had this phenomenon in the summer and autumn of 2008 where people who'd never donated money before were coughing up 50 or or $100 for the Obama campaign, and people who'd never knocked on doors before were going out and knocking on doors or they were telebanking. They were doing whatever they could to get Obama across the finish line. And I think the assumption was, and you saw it in this sort of emotional, cathartic outpouring on the evening of November 4th when cities across the country had these street parties emerge, I think the outpouring of emotion in the wake of the election was because people thought November 5th, the country will look and be utterly different. And it wasn't, because then after he got elected came the hard part of actually enacting policy change. And one of the things, not as a writer of this book so much, but as a political observer, that I found interesting in following the healthcare debate has been that when organizing for America, which is the made permanent wing of the Obama campaign, tried to mobilize its database of supporters, tried to get them out in the streets to support health care reform. And you're right, there was this moment when the public wanted fundamental health care reform. But Organizing for America, which had had such success during the election campaign, had a fizzle when it came to getting the same public out on the streets to push for public um, options in health care. And I think that says something. I think, you know, we, people were willing to invest all of their dreams in the person of Barack Obama and not necessarily in the specific policies behind his campaign. Um, and there's an irony there, because when, when you read Obama's early writings, he writes these essays in which he's very, very critical of the notion of charismatic leadership. This is when he's working in Chicago in the 1980s, and Mayor Harold Washington was mayor, and, and then after Mayor Washington died, his, his um, followers couldn't get his policies enacted. And Obama does a series of articles and series of lectures in which he says, well, Washington failed to build a coalition around policies. It was all about Washington the individual, and there's a danger in that. And I find it very ironic when you look at Obama's own career over the years that a man who's so aware of the dangers of charismatic leadership has become in some ways the ultimate example of American charismatic leadership. Yeah. We're speaking with Sasha Abramsky. The book is Inside Obama's Brain. Is, is there anything that you know about Obama doing your studying about what's inside his brain that suggests how he may react to this uh, situation he's in being put <laughs> as a charismatic leader yeah. and disappointing people. Well, I, I did speak to a lot of his advisors about, not so much about the um, disillusionment that would follow a sort of experiment with charismatic leadership, but I spoke yeah. to a lot of his advisors about, you know, what does Obama do when there dips in popularity? What does he do when there's a sort of flurry of bad headlines. Um, and a lot of political campaigns get very distracted by this. Um, Bill Clinton, who was a very skilled politician, if you speak to people behind the scenes, they'll say, well, look, he was very, very good, but he'd get very, very distracted by opinion polls and by sort of whether or not he was popular in the moment. And some of these same advisors then went on to work for Barack Obama. And I'd speak with them, and some of them talked on the record, some of them talked on background. But they'd say to me, well, one of the differences, one of the things that makes Obama such an interesting character as an individual is that he's very even-keeled, that he doesn't have these sort of drama moments when things look bad and he panics. And they said, well, you know, oftentimes we were the ones who'd panic, you know, we being his political advisors or his posters, and we'd say, look, we're going off course, we need to do something different. And Obama would come back to the campaign, let's say during the Iowa caucus, um, and he'd say, no, we're going to follow the plan. We're going to stick with our schedule. We're going to stick with our ideas. We're not going to do the low road and engage in dirty politics. And time and again, he'd say to them, look, we're going to ignore the polls. We're going to do what we think is right. And the other thing they said to me is he thinks very, very long term. Um, and these are people who you know, have worked with many different presidents, many different senior figures over the years. So they're not in awe of him just because he's president. 
But they said, look, one of the things you have to understand about Barack Obama is he'll come into a room and we'll be talking about complex policy, healthcare reform, economic reform, and so on. And they'll say, forget about the politics, forget about the sound bites, forget about tomorrow's headlines. I want you guys to envision what kind of a society, what kind of a country you want to live in 25 years from now. And then I want you to envision how do we get there? What does it need to look like in 20 years, in 10 years, in five years, and so on? Now, that's, to me, an inversion of the normal process. Normally, politicians think short-term, and if it happens to have a long-term benefit, well and good. But the long-term is very secondary. For Obama, his advisors tell me that long-term is primary, that that's what he cares about. And so I think if you're looking at Obama and his relationship to the public, my sense is that this is a man who doesn't panic when there's a momentary dip in opinion polls, um, and that he has this sort of inner confidence. Some, some of his advisors said, well, you look at Obama, and there's something almost zen about him. Um, and I think that there is something zen about him in a way, that he's very, very calm in the face of crisis, and that makes for a more, um, a more stable form of governance. One of the things we saw about the Bush era was that they'd sort of ignore crises until they got to a sort of bursting point, and then there would be the stampede of activity, and it would always have this sort of semblance of panic to it. And you'd always think, well, are they really thinking through what they're doing, or is this just this sort of chaotic response because something has to be done? And with the Obama administration, my sense is that there's a stability behind the, behind the decision-making. And that it's not always going to result in popularity, but it will result in consistency. And that's, you know, again, as a political journalist, that's what I find fascinating about this moment, is that the way in which government has been carried out, and I'm not talking about ideology here, I'm just talking about temperament, the way in which government has been carried out is very, very different from the way it's been carried out in the recent past. And I agree. I agree with you. Um, <coughs> there, <clears throat> I think the, the thing that, for me, defined his campaign was in the midst of the Reverend Wright stuff, and um, and he comes out and, and gives a, a terrific speech, a wonderful speech on race, really defining his his place in that debate and in a way that uh, made him feel and seem to be more of a leader than almost anything else he did during the campaign. It was a, a wonderful moment for him, a wonderful moment for the country for that to happen. He does have this sense of calm. I agree with you. Um, I've just... My concern, and I think from uh, a lot of progressives, is um, is is he in the midst of slowing down this tanker that was the Bush administration in its recklessness in Iraq and Afghanistan and beyond foreign policy-wise and environmental issues, domestic issues? Is he trying to slow down that that what that jargonaut was about, and or is he just a a more moderate version? of a lot of the same things that are so distressing to us as progressives that the Bush administration was about. And I don't know if that it's a question you can answer after even well, a year. I, I, I don't no, know. I mean, I, I, I could give it a go. Um, it's actually, I, I sat down for lunch yesterday with a friend of mine, and we, we had this sort of long conversation about the direction of the country. And one of the things that we talked about was that if you actually look at the headlines, you could be forgiven for thinking nothing has changed, that, Bush is just, that Obama is just a sort of glibber, better-spoken version of George Bush. But if you actually step back and you chronicle specific ways in which policy has changed course, in which America's priorities have shifted, there's some fundamental changes going on. Um, and, I, I, I mean, doing lists is never very helpful, but let, let me just give a couple examples where I think there are um, some just tremendously important changes in priority going on. First of them is climate change policy, and, you know, obviously what happened in Copenhagen was not a pretty spectacle. But on the other hand, for the first time in a generation of conversation about climate change, 
the American government is not only recognizing that it's an urgent problem, but it's taking something of a lead in international negotiations in trying to work out a way to go forward and to fix this problem. And you look at the Bush administration on this. The Bush administration, for most of its presidency, actually denied the reality of climate change. And then very, very begrudgingly at the tail end, they started to accept the science, but they wouldn't put in place any programmatic changes. Now, that's a huge issue. And if you look at the, you know, it's night and day between Obama and Bush on that. And the other huge issue in foreign policy, and I'm not going to talk about the specifics of Iraq and Afghanistan, because I think, you know, that's a whole other conversation. I'd love to come back on the show to talk about. But the other, the other sort of huge policy difference is nuclear weaponry. And the Bush administration had this policy that they were going to build up next generation nuclear weapons. They were going to defend America with this sort of unworkable, very expensive m- missile shield that would destabilize international relations. And the Obama administration comes in and within a few months of taking office, it dismantles the missile shield program, and it declares that a stated objective is nuclear negotiations with the Russians that will eventually result in elimination of nuclear weaponry. Now, if you look at the policy shift on those two, two issues alone, climate change and nuclear policy, it seems to me that America's now on a dramatically different course. And I think you could do the same domestically. Um, you could certainly say that health care reform is an imperfect solution to the problem. But on the other hand, can you imagine George Bush spending six months of his presidency trying to create a viable coalition in Congress to provide universal coverage for Americans? It just wouldn't have happened. Um, If you look at the way in which the auto industry was salvaged, again, the Bush administration had let a number of major industrial pillars collapse, Bethlehem Steel being a case in point, several of the um, airline and several of the airline companies, and they'd gone into bankruptcy specifically so they could trim their pension and their health care obligations. And the Obama administration looks at what's happening with the car companies, and it says, look, we'll rescue you, but in exchange, you're going to have to give an ownership stake to the United Auto Workers Pension Fund so that their pensions and health care are protected. Now, that, again, is just a tremendous, tremendous change in national priorities. And I think we're starting to see that legacy being built up. Well, that, that's, that's encouraging. And I, it's just what I keep coming back to is, and you alluded to it, we talked a little bit about it earlier, and that is the American public, for the first time in many, many decades, as far as I can tell, and and was ready to see some significant changes and was prepared to then they did in many ways in 2006 and 2008 vote for it and as well as and i i, I think as progressives uh, certainly from my from my perspective we need to be cognizant of the fact that these so-called teabaggers are people that are angry for a really good reason now why they're angry and who they're directing their angry anger towards needs to be redirected but <clears throat> these are genuine, honest people who are really upset about what has happened to them in, in these last few years, the economy and, and their, their, this, this, the job situation and, and all of that. And, um, and I guess what I'm saying, there was a climate for some very s- yep. significant change. And I, I understand. And I, I, I guess there's an eagerness on my part to see more well, happen in a, in a shorter period of time. I'll tell you, I've been trying to work out an, a sort of intellectual framework to understand the last few years, um, because it seems to me that we've had so many dramatic shifts in the way our economy functions and the way our political process functions, that we're seeing not so much a sort of re-politicization of the public, but we're seeing this sort of extraordinary oscillation moment where 
values in the marketplace are shifting so rapidly. Stock market up, stock market down, housing prices up, housing prices down, oil prices through the roof, oil prices down again. And I think we're seeing a sort of similar thing in the political process, that people are looking for answers to all the chaos. And they're not necessarily sure where the answers lie. And so you see the sort of swing to the right with George Bush. And then you see this sort of dramatic reemergence of American progressivism, which leads to Barack Obama getting elected. And then, as you said, you see the Tea Party people and their sort of anger and Sarah Palin sort of becoming this person who embodies that strand of anger. And I think all of this is, is sort of coming together. And uh, what I've been talking about in some of my talks about the book at the moment is that to understand where Obama emerges, I don't think it's just about the reemergence of progressivism. I think it's about the emergence of these wild swings in our politics and our economics. And we're still in the middle of those swings. Mm. We haven't stabilized the economy. You know, all, all, of the, all of the chaos that led to Obama being a possible viable candidate could at some point lead to someone like Sarah Palin being a possible viable candidate. Mm. And I think you know, it's a really interesting, maybe quite a scary moment in our politics. Yeah, I, I think uh, in some ways uh, the uh, the right, uh, the people of the the tea uh, the Tea Party movement, are kind of in some ways justified in their anger, but also sort of uh, a victim of a Stockholm syndrome when it comes to the people that they're uh, that they've thrown their lot in with, and uh, you know it's something they know they at least know that they know George Bush, they know George uh, uh, Dick Cheney, they understand that. But they don't quite understand uh, uh, Barack Obama because he's "quote unquote" different. I, I think it. that's right, and I think they're also sort of, in a sense, a prisoner of their own rhetoric. Yeah. What I mean by that, I've, I've done a lot of reporting in the last few months, where I've gone down to Southern California and I've gone to some of these tea parties, and they're mainly made up of people in their sixties and seventies, recent retirees, and it's a sort of very weird dynamic. They stand on street corners waving American flags. And they start giving out literature about um, this, this sort of big government takeover of their lives. And their, their big sort of concerns are that their taxes are being increased and that government is taking over health care. So I would, I'll say to them, well, you know, have your taxes increased? Can you, can you give me an example? And almost to a person, they'll say no, because in actual fact, taxes haven't increased. But then they'll say, but we think they're going to increase. And then I'll say to them, well, how old are you? And they'll say, you know, 68, 69. And I'll say, well, where do you get your health care from? And they'll say, well, we're on Medicare. And I say, well, who provides it? And they'll pause. And I think they realize that, that you know, they're, they're treading into a sort of intellectually incoherent terrain here. And instead of saying the government, they'll say, well, we worked hard all our lives and we paid taxes for it. <laughs> and I, 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 it's this sort yeah. of intellectual absurdity, but I think that this is what we're seeing, that you know, they've been told by Glenn Beck and they've been told by all, Rush Limbaugh and all these other right-wing commentators who they're listening to, that their taxes are going up and that government is taking over an area of their lives it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And even though their taxes aren't going up, and even though that's the population that's most involved in government health care already, they've somehow sort of squared the circle and made this into an argument against Barack Obama's presidency. Yeah. And I find it a very, very strange sort of... It's a very anti-intellectual, anti-coherent movement in a way. It's a visceral reaction is what it is. Yeah. And I would say that these, this generation that you're speaking of, my dad's and, and, and his generation, were the greatest beneficiaries of government programs going back to the GI Bill forward you know, housing uh, subsidies and all the rest of it, the greatest beneficiary of government-subsidized living in our nation's history. So no, that's right, and I think they also take it for granted as opposed to realizing that these things sometimes have to be fought for. I had a very interesting conversation with a, um, 
friend of mine, George, in New York, who's, who's um, been a journalist for years and years, and he said, when I, when I was telling him about these Tea Party movements, he said, well, are they the really old or the soft old? And I sort of thought about it, and I said, well, they're the soft old. They're the people who are recently retired. And he said, that's right, because the really old people, the ones who are in their 80s and 90s, even if they were well enough to protest against taxes, they wouldn't, because they're the ones with a living memory still of the New Deal years. Yeah. And they're the ones who remember that we didn't always have Social Security yeah. and we didn't always have all of these government protections, but that they were actually a product of a particular economic crisis and a particular presidency. Whereas the soft old, the ones who came of age in the 40s and 50s, for them, that was just the background. They, they didn't have this sort of sense that you had a fight to get these protections. And now they've got them. And they want to keep them, but they don't necessarily want to recognize that anyone else should have them, that we should expand the social contract to include people who don't currently have health insurance. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it, that this is a sort of particular moment in our history and a particular generation's experience. Well, this is a fascinating discussion. We'd love to continue, but unfortunately we're out of time. The book is Inside Obama's Brain. Sasha Bramsky, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Oh, thank you for having me on. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.